Hi, it's Jennifer Diane Ghostin, and welcome to Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land. A part of my identity is being an adoptee, being separated at birth from my original family and placed into foster care for two years before being adopted has significantly impacted how I see my place in the world. After connecting with the adoption community over a decade ago, I recognized the added value adoptees bring to a conversation about adoption. You may have wondered what reunion looks like from an adoptee's point of view, or be embarking upon taking that journey yourself to search for your first family, or simply want confirmation that you are not alone in your experience wherever you are on the path of healing and pushing through a trauma. Wouldn't it be empowering to have many of your burning questions answered here? Lynn Grubb grew up in a suburb of Dayton, Ohio, climbing trees, dressing up her cats, and playing the violin for the neighborhood kids. She graduated from Wright State University and worked as a legal secretary and paralegal. As Lynn was nearing her 40th birthday, she became a kinship adoptive parent, which ignited a 15-year search for both of her birth parents. In 2012, she was invited to write a guest blog at Lost Daughters. That same year, she began her blog, No Apologies for Being Me, and has been a part of the adoption community ever since. Allow me to introduce you to a person that I find to be as smart as they come. I'm delighted to know her. She's thoughtful and intentional in paying it forward so other adoptees can benefit from her wealth of experience. Listen to her first open with things that she wants you to know before she shares her journey as an adoptee. My name is Lynn Grubb. And I'm going to discuss the three things that I took from my search and reunion experience that I want to share with others listening. The first thing is, it's our human right to know where we come from. Genealogy is for everybody, is what I like to say. And our circumstances are not our fault, yet we are still responsible to do the work. But while we're doing the work, just never give up. Never give up that you're going to find what you're looking for. And finally, don't be afraid to ask for help. Um, There's so many people out there in the community that are just waiting to be asked. Please ask. And then once you're helped, pay it forward and help another adoptee that can use your skills and experience to better their life. Perfect. (laughs) Hi, Lynn. Hi, Jennifer. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. So excited to do this podcast today. I'm so glad you accepted my invitation because you an icon in the community. Your name comes up so much and it's always good stuff. So I'm so glad you're going to give the listeners a real treat because you've been involved with the community for a while. So wherever you want to, yeah, wherever you want to start, I I would like you to tell a part of your story first. I was adopted in the closed era in 1966. I was told about being adopted really, really early enough that I don't recall the conversation. So it's kind of always been just part of my identity and knowledge. And I don't have any trauma from the actual telling because I don't remember the telling. It wasn't until later in my life that I started um, recognizing that what did happen to me did create a trauma, but I'll get into that later. So I grew up in a suburb of Dayton, Ohio, 
with a brother who was also adopted. I'm the oldest and he's three years younger than me with two parents who were transplants to the Chicago area. And at that time they had heard through their doctor about the cradle adoption agency. That's how they got linked up with that. We lived in Northbrook for a short time. And then when I was two and a half, we moved to Dayton, Ohio. And and I've been here ever since. Dayton, Ohio. And so you were adopted through the cradle in Evanston. Correct. And have you come to know better kind of how they do things? Because they've been around for a long time. Yes. I'm glad you asked me that. I have been doing a lot of research about the cradle. Um, They've been around since the 20s. I found some criticism about the agency when I researched. There's a letter to Eleanor Roosevelt that discusses that um, the cradle was kind of a wild card in a way, like some of the other, they called them commercial adoption agencies. So how they were different is they charged a lot more money for kids than the other agencies that were out there that were publicly funded or religiously based. Also, besides charging a lot of money, in the beginning, they didn't believe in using social workers. So they got a lot of criticism for that. Eventually, they did employ social workers. By the time I was adopted in the 60s, they had social workers on staff. But their history of covering up children's identity is a strong one. Um, They were aware that it was best for kids to grow up knowing their identity. But instead of giving them that valid information, they sent parents home with a letter explaining why they shouldn't need to know this information. Mm. I just literally found that out this week, in fact. Wow. Yeah, I had a chance to visit there back in maybe 2009. It was kind of a happy place. I mean, I got a tour. There was a lot of controversy surrounding Mm -hmm. this agency. And and I always wondered, because I wasn't a part of the cradle at all, but I just always wondered... What is with that controversy? Like, like I wanted to do some research about it. It's, it's often been referred to as like the, the adoption agency to the stars or something, or like had this reputation of being kind of this elite place. Absolutely. Those. Yeah. yeah. Um, I have um, written about that in my, the memoir that I'm hoping to publish this year. Um, Bob Hope, George Burns, um, Joan Crawford, And there's others adopted children from there. And so they got this reputation. And I enjoyed going through old newspapers, trying to figure out what the newspaper reporters were saying about them back then. And so I quote some of the findings um, about them. Basically, it, it boils down to the babies coming out of the cradle were seen as having silver spoons in their mouth. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's really not true. There was enough Hollywood people involved that it just gave them that reputation. But the average child went to just, you know, middle-class moms and dads. I'm glad you shared that. Yeah. It was, you know how they like, sometimes the media, and I think this was common in the sixties, they like to blow up every little thing to make it dramatic. Mm-hmm. So when there was famous people involved, they latch onto that and they report more about it. So right. I was able to find stuff on, on newspapers.com. So let's go back a little bit to your story. Always knowing you were adopted, I imagine that there are times you would think about your family of origin. Absolutely. Um, I thought about my birth mother all the time, especially on my birthday. I would always wonder, was she thinking about me? 
what did she look like? Why was I given up for adoption? Mm-hmm. And I would, I was a very vocal child and I would ask my mother these questions all the time. And my mother would say the same thing. We just don't know. I've heard it described as in like, it might be Betty Jean Lifton. Some psychologists said it's called the telling without telling. So you say, we just don't know, but you're not really getting any new information. And, and it was just a cycle of questions, questions, and more questions, and never any valid answers for me. Mm-hmm. Did you get a sense that you were supported, though, if you wanted to search? No, I did not. My parents were kind of interesting in the fact that they didn't hide my adoption. They were very open about it. It was nothing to be ashamed about. My mother even wrote up summaries to my teachers saying, hey, she's adopted. So if she says anything that makes you wonder, it's and that happened. I had a few teachers not believe me when I would talk about my adoption. Mm-hmm. So they were really open in that sense. But when it came to search or finding out information about my mother, my mother was very against it. The one who raised me, she used to have nightmares that my brother's mother showed back up on the doorstep to reclaim him. I know it was really a fearful thing for her to think that, you know, our quote, real mothers, our biological mothers might show back up. Yeah, so that's interesting not- you mentioned that because my mother, adoptive mother, did not want me to search. Mm-hmm. And unpacking that, I do think it was more, yeah, if that birth mother shows up, then maybe she will take her away from me. Yeah, absolutely. And there were things in the there was things in the media at that time, you know, that again, they glorified and glamorized any one little case when most adoptions went smoothly, there'd be that one case where maybe the father didn't consent or the attorney did something wrong. And, you know, the child was returned and then you'd see it playing on TV or news reports or whatever TV shows she watched at the time. And it would scare her. You know, in the 70s, there were a lot of talk shows. She would watch that kind of stuff and be terrified that mm-hmm. that to happen. And it didn't. Like, she doesn't have any friends that had adopted kids that ever had their adoption disrupt. There are tons of adoptive parents in Dayton, Ohio, that adopted at the cradle. There was even like a club. My parents weren't members of it. But there was so many um, cradle parents living here in Dayton, enough that they had their own group. Oh, I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. And you know what I think it is? I've learned that Ohio was way stricter than Illinois as far as adoption policy and laws. And so parents would go out of state to adopt Mm. Chicago, Illinois. And, you know, the cradle had a good reputation and friends would tell friends and their laws must have been just easier because my parents said the adoption went smoothly but they had heard horror stories from friends of theirs who went Ohio for adoption and it just wasn't it wasn't good it wasn't a positive experience Mm -hmm. so you at some point did the search for your maternal side right absolutely yes and what year was that that was 2006 and I was 40 Mm -hmm. what made you do that At the time, I really wanted to search when I was about 25. So I reached out to my agency and requested help. And they they said, well, all we can do is send you this non-identifying information, which I did receive. And they offered me their own mutual consent registry. But in that letter, they said, your birth mother has not made contact with our agency since since relinquishing you. You know, that made me feel like, oh, well, she's not looking for me. 
she doesn't want to meet me because I didn't know any better back then. So I literally just put everything in a folder and shoved it in a box and forgot about it and just went back to my regular life. And it wasn't until I was 39 that my husband, there was a crisis pregnancy in my husband's family. The two of us ended up adopting his one of his relatives. And that just broke me open. It was the trigger for my identity crisis. Let's just call it that. Mm-hmm. And and I'm just thinking when you were, say, early 20s, 30s, had it crossed your mind to do a search? Oh, yeah. Yes. I mean, I've always wanted to search, but the laws didn't allow me to find out my surname. I didn't know any way. Like, I wasn't part of the community. I didn't know any way to get around it. I probably had never even heard of a private investigator in my 20s. By my 30s, you know, I was I worked in the legal field, so I knew they existed, but I literally felt like there was no hope. So I just put it in a little box inside of my mind and just went on with my life. There's parts of our lives where we're just really busy and we're, you know, starting a family and we're trying to get our career going. And I just compartmentalized it for until later in my life yeah. when I had that moment of, oh, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Same here. I, well, I knew that I wasn't going to likely search for the same reasons, uh, or I should say come up with some good results because I did not have an original birth certificate. People would ask, well, what's the name? You know, we need a name. We need a birth date. And, and I had none of that. You know, absolutely. Uh, so you just kind of at a standstill. And like you say, life, you're living life and, and yeah. so many other things are going on. Mm-hmm. But at some point you do make contact with your maternal side, I would imagine, and or your and or your paternal side. Yes. Once we adopted my husband's relative, I about a year later, I was perusing adoption.com and I saw this post by a stranger that said, attention, Illinois adoptees, your surname is on the final decree of adoption in almost all cases. And I was like, what? (laughs) That can't be true. Right. So I grabbed that box that I'd thrown that file in with all the paperwork my parents had given me. And I looked on there and I saw my surname. I w- it said the Cradle Adoption Agency versus Baby Girl surname on it right in front of me. And I was just totally shocked, especially because I work in the legal field. I was like, how could I have missed this? Why did I not read these documents more carefully? Why am I sitting here in my basement at age 39 just seeing these papers for the first time? So it was it was shocking, but in a good way. It really propelled me to begin my search at that point. Did you know that there was, like, had you always known, I'm, I'm guessing as an adult, that there was an original birth certificate out there? Yes, I knew that when I was in my 20s, and I knew that I couldn't get it. Mm-hmm. I don't remember how I learned about it, to be honest. Probably from all my readings in the library, That's where I got all of my adoption information was from the library. Mm -hmm. So like people like Joyce Paveo, I always butcher her name. I read her book. I read Betty Jean Lifton's books. And so I felt like I knew some things, but yeah, I couldn't really apply them to my life because I was still, I don't like the word fog, but I was still not ready. Yeah. 
So I had the knowledge, but not the gumption yet to put myself out there and, you know, because it's a risk and you risk rejection and there's a lot of fear involved. I wasn't ready until that moment when I saw that post at adoption.com. And that is when something inside of me just was like, this is my right. I'm doing this. Nothing's going to stop me. Yeah, I had that attitude too. Nothing's <laughs> going to stop me. And, right. and I started searching before I even knew about the law changing. And I oh, remember, wow. yeah, and I remember when I started calling downstate to Springfield, Illinois, I kept hearing people tell me, well, Illinois, you're going to get your original birth certificate. You know, Illinois is going to change their law. Just hold you, just hold your horses. And I was thinking original mm-hmm. birth. That's when I it became the real to me what an, <laughs> what an original birth certificate was. Like I hadn't even right. put two and two together. But like you, I wasn't going to be stopped. And thank goodness they were changing the law. But I st- like there are other records. There's an d- adoption decree. There's an adoption file somewhere. That's what I was thinking mm-hmm. that was just as important to me as an original birth certificate. Absolutely. Yeah. So you make contact with your birth family. Well, let me tell you that how that happened. So at the time that I got this information, my husband and I used the surname to really try to search through Chicago. It wasn't a hugely common name, but it was common enough that there was no way for us to figure out what location my birth mother originated in. So we tried that on our own. And then we realized we need help. And so I got on the Cradle's website and I saw that they had post-adoption services. And I was like, this is excellent. So I went through the whole website and I'm like, okay, I just need to fill out all these papers. And then I saw that it was $500. And so it took us a little while to get that money that we could keep outside of our regular budget to pay it. Yeah, that's a lot lot of of money. money. And we did that, and that was early 2006. And so Nina, my social worker at the Cradle, was assigned to my case. She's a post-adoption social worker. I believe she's also a therapist. And uh, she found my mother within one week. My mother had married a man with a very unique surname. So she found her, and my birth mother was open to meeting me, explained that I had been a secret from my siblings, but not her husband. So that was that really worked to my benefit because her husband knew about me. She was open. She was open to knowing me when um, Nina found her and I got my first letter and then we exchanged photos because she didn't do the computer at all. So we didn't do any electronic stuff. By October 1st, we were sitting on the beach together, spending a week for our first time meeting for our reunion. Mm. I stayed with her in her condo. How was that? Oh, gosh, it was overwhelming. It was somewhat comforting because it was my my adoptive family's vacation spot. So it was one of those adoption synchronicities that we always come, come upon in our journeys where both my birth family and my adoptive family vacationed in the same spot. Mm. We stayed at my birth mother's condo. I think... The whole thing, I was just walking through like in a daze now that I look back. I felt really traumatized, but it wasn't until I came back home that it kind of settled into me and I realized, oh, yeah, (laughs) that hit me. (laughs) It it was good and it was not good. It was just a mix of both. Mm -hmm. How how would you describe it not being good? Well, at the time, um, she... 
I was really hopeful and believed that she would um, disclose who my father was. Mm -hmm. And she said she didn't remember. She said, I wish I could help you, but I just don't know. And I was absolutely not prepared for that answer. Like it never occurred to me that she wouldn't just tell me his name. Right. And so I was just, what? Did you believe her? Record scratch. (laughs) No, not really. I mean, Mm. I believed that something happened that maybe wasn't good. And maybe she didn't remember because she had admitted to me she'd been drinking. Met him at a party. But she didn't really go into any details at that time. Mm -hmm. So I, I was left with the feeling of, I do believe she met him at a party. I do believe she was drinking, but there's got to be more to the story that she's not wanting to share with me. Mm-hmm. And so I just let it be. After that one conversation, I didn't bring it up again to her because I could tell it made her very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So we just tried to enjoy the rest of our trip. Then I flew back home. I pretty much had to go to therapy right away because I was having a massive grief response, which I didn't clearly recognize that's what it was at the time. Mm -hmm. But I just, I was just a mess when I got back in town. At some point you find your paternal birth? Yes, last year actually. Um, So she didn't tell me who he was. A lot of investigative type work happened after that, which I write about in my memoir. But I met a search angel. Well, let me go back a little bit further. I read the book by Richard Hill, Finding Family. When I first started writing, I wrote for Lost Daughters, and I was assigned his book to to read it and interview him. So I did, and by the end of that book, I felt some renewed hope that I would learn who my father was. Now, by this time, this was 2012. I met my birth mother in 2006, so all of those years in between I didn't have any real knowledge. I didn't have a name of who my father was. I got in touch with Richard. I interviewed him. I ordered a family finder test at Family Tree DNA, and I waited for my results. And back then in 2012, we didn't have a lot of testers. Family Tree is more geared toward genealogists. So my closest matches were like fifth, sixth, seventh cousins, which didn't help me. Really. Mm-hmm. And a lot of my cousins were, we were, I was starting to see a pattern of them being Mexican, but I didn't know. So part of my story is, is that I didn't know my eth- ethnic background, and which is a lot of what I write about in different essays that I've published. And so that was really important to me. Mm-hmm. So I found a search angel. Well, he found me, I should say. <laughs> he found me and he asked me if he could help me. And of course, I was willing to take any help because I didn't know anything about DNA at that time. And so he became, I call it the boots on the ground guy. He, uh, he lives, he lives in Chicago and he lived close to the area where my birth family's from. And he started doing investigative work. He started doing interviews with people and he analyzed my DNA and told me my father was Latin American, something Mm. I never knew. Yeah. Wow. So how did, how did you respond to that? (laughs) Oh, gosh, I'm still processing it, to be honest. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Um, There's so much involved, and it's such a complicated thing. And I found that there's not a lot of people in the adoption community. I've met a couple people in the same boat, but not very many. I'm still trying to unpack it. But at the time, I wrote a blog called 
no apologies for being me. Mm. It's called, uh, the blog is called The Reluctant Latina. And I talk about how I'm putting all these pieces back into my life together. Like, you know, I loved Spanish. I took Spanish. Um, I took a South American genealogy type class in college, never knowing my own history. My mom taught Spanish. Just so many pieces, like kind of going, you go back through your history and you start to see things differently once you have this knowledge. So I did a lot of that. I felt sad. I felt sad that I didn't get to know any of that side of my my culture Mm -hmm. and my people. And so I'm still working through that because um, I didn't learn my father's identity till last year. Finally, um, I got a match close enough in Ancestry DNA to help me solve it. So it's been a long journey trying to figure him out. And (laughs) he's alive. (laughs) And I was not expecting that. Mm. And we have had no contact. Okay. Yeah. So as a published writer and editor, what's been the most rewarding experience for you? Definitely working collaboratively, can't say the word, sorry, with other writers and really helping new writers get their story out there. That's something I wanted to do with the Adoptee Survival Guide. I put a call for submissions, but it was very impersonal or just casual on my wall. And it just said, hey, do you want to tell your story? And I was really thrilled to get a great mix of people who were really great already established writers and then a whole bunch of people who'd never published anything before. Mm. And so I was really excited to be able to give them that first opportunity because I felt really, I remember how excited I was when I first got an essay published. Yes. And so that's, that's what I love about it. I love inspiring other people and helping them and encouraging them to share their story because, as you know, Jennifer, it's scary. It's very you know, scary. Yeah. It's vulnerable. We put our stuff out there and we're going to get criticized. We're, we might get some bad reviews. We might get um, a hater coming to our blog and posting comments that I don't publish, but I read. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And then and, just people with different opinions. Absolutely. Which challenge yeah. you. Yeah, like mm-hmm. so true. And I love that you are giving that space for other writers to take that leap because it is a leap. And you've um, you've done so much work in that area. You have eight anthology books, right? I do. Yes. Yeah. Tell us yeah. about that. Well, the first one was um, when I was writing for Lost Daughters. I wrote something about my ethnicity being unknown. So that was my first. And then after that, Amanda Wollston, she is the creator of Lost Daughters. Mm -hmm. She was involved with Diane Renee Christian and Mimi Ellerman, and they did an adult anthology called The Perpetual Child Dismantling the Stereotype. And so I had to submit an essay, um, which mine's called Mother May I? basically going through the whole process of like the game mother may i you have to ask permission to get your information Mm. mother may i have this mother may i have that take two steps forward take three steps back kind of like that and so from there that same group of people did the project dear wonderful you letters to adopted and fostered youth and that was a really inspiring book because we aimed that toward um teens teens and young adults who we hoped would pick up the book and say, you know, wow, all these other adoptees went through this and I don't have to feel so alone. So that was another project. And then 
the same group of people also did flip the script. I have an essay in there basically telling adoptees that we are the experts on adoption. Mm-hmm. When I first heard that term, flip the script, it just like, it felt so on point. And I started yeah, seeing that right. hashtag everywhere. And I'm like, absolutely. Like that is so cool for Adoption Awareness Month. In, in for no, sure. You know, in November. Yeah. And Rosita Gonzalez came up with that. And um, she is a lost daughter also. And we were all just chatting in the room one day. And she's like, I just think we need to flip this script. Mm-hmm. And so that's where it all started. And that particular year, the flip the script movement got on national news so it became a big thing. Yeah, as it should, and, and it really took off. And I, I like to think that adoptive parents and the whatever group has center stage when it comes to adoption month, they had to kind of pause and take notice of us yeah. as adoptees. Yeah. I hope so. <laughs> I hope that, you know, isn't that why we write? We right. I feel like writing is education. Mm-hmm. We have to get our stories and our um, experiences out there for, yeah, for adoptive parents to see how they can do it better. You know, I always tell my mom, my mom gets very defensive and she defends the cradle all the time. And I I tell her, I'm like, mom, I'm not criticizing you. I, I know you weren't educated properly. This is not about you personally. This is about the adoption industry. This is how things are done. And a lot of us older adoptees want to ensure that younger adoptees don't ever have to grow up not knowing who they are. Exactly. And and I do think we'll see things continue to get better because part of it is a generational thing. I just yes. talked with an adoptee yesterday, 21 years old, and her, she calls her Nana. And I love her, her grandmother. She says, but she's kind of stuck in thinking a certain way about adoption. And uh-huh, yeah. yeah, and she at 21 recognizes that part of it is generational. Definitely. Yeah. I have to agree. And, you know, we are starting the Davy Scoop era was a long time ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so we need to be thinking about how adoption is practiced today. Yes. You know, we're still sealing records from adoptees. So that. The ceiling of the records, I don't see ever changing in our country. But what is bad about it is that there's going to be a new generation of adoptees potentially growing up without knowing, even in the age of open adoption, Mm -hmm. if they're lied to, if that's kept from them. So you've been connected to the community for a while. And so what's been the best thing about being connected to the adoption community? I would say having the friends that I have today. Um, Most of my closest friends are adopted. Mm -hmm. They get it. They get it without even having to explain. If I'm feeling a certain way, maybe I'm triggered by something I saw and this is us. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I might message them or send a Marco Polo. Some of my friends, we use Marco Polo. It's a video app and you can send videos back and forth. I might do that or... Um, I just feel less alone. I feel like I have my community around me. That that has come up many, many times uh, as I talk with other adoptees. And, and like you, being connected for a while, I know that it's the best thing for me to be for able sure. to know their group of people. And it's not really, it's not just adoptees. I, I have ado- uh, birth moms that I I talk to regularly. 
their take on having relinquished their babies in the 60s uh, has deeply impacted them. And they would be birth mothers that search for their uh, children and found them. And so, yeah, like I learned so much from them. So it's it's the community. I would say in, in just as a whole, the community has been very healing for me. And And I think that even if you're not like really active like you are and myself, just knowing that the community is there is, is quite helpful for anybody adopted. Absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, now that COVID, once COVID hit, everything went to Zoom. And I think that has enabled us to reach more people. I know with the National Association of Adoptees and Parents, which I am part of, um, we do the adoption happy hours every Friday night. And all of that came to be because the conference, the live conference was canceled. And we've been able to reach people that otherwise would not be traveling to Indianapolis for a conference. And it's just been fantastic to hear so many different viewpoints coming from outside of just our own communities. There's people that log in from other countries um, it's just been amazing, and I'm just really excited about the p- potential of Zoom in general. I know people kind of have Zoom burnout, but I see it as this great tool to connect with people that we otherwise wouldn't meet in, you know, real life. I do, too, and, and Happy Hour is great, and I'm glad to know that you're a part of NAAP and that you're going to be at the in-person conference September 10th and 11th. So yeah, I am part of a workshop with Marcy Keithley, Lorraine Pittman, and Paige Adams Strickland, and we are doing a writing workshop together. That's great. And if you can't attend, they are live streaming it for the first time, so you can still register and see um, not the whole conference, but there's big portions of the conference, including Brian Stanton. He's doing a new play i guess it would be called he's a one-man show mm-hmm. and um, if you sign up you can see that and some of the other highlights probably the main speakers i would guess mm-hmm. yeah, you can find out more at napunited.org say that one more time www.napunited.org okay So, Lynn, I may make the NAAP in conference. I'm not sure. I really want to be there, but I'm just not sure yet. Yeah, I would love that. So you are writing a memoir. You want to talk about that? Yes, it's been a project. I started writing in 2019. At that time, I didn't know who my father was. It mainly started out as just documenting the search for him. And then once I found him, I kind of expanded into other things. And I kept going backwards from knowing him to then meeting my birth mother. And then even further back than that, I thought I need to put a lot more in here to really explain my search because my search just seemed to be in this vacuum. It's been a process and I'm really excited about getting it published. I I hope to get it published before the conference, mm-hmm. um, but I don't know if that's realistic. I do have a full draft prepared, and I do plan to self-publish, so I'm working with an editor right now. Oh, that's great. I know it's going to be very good, and I Thank know you. because you did a search and having a reunion, what would you advise those that are looking for original birth family members? 
I would say the first most important thing to do is to get support Mm -hmm. in place before you make any contact with people. That was the mistake that I made, which I didn't realize I was making a mistake because I wasn't part of the community. Looking back, I can see that the, the support would have been invaluable. So I would have understood what was happening to me when I got back. And I outline that more in the memoir. I talk more about what happened and what I did about it. I would also say tread slowly and carefully with DNA, even though I love it. And I think it's great for those of us in still and sealed record states mm-hmm. that you just have to be ready because it's it goes from zero to 100. My reunion unfolded slowly, slower than what they do nowadays. With DNA, you literally could put your DNA in there and know who your birth parent is in such a short amount of time and make a lot of mistakes by contacting the wrong people. Mm. And so um, I would say get get some professional search help as it relates to DNA. And I could recommend somebody um, if you're interested in hearing about that. Yeah. I don't personally do that. (laughs) I don't do that part. I, I like figuring it out, but I don't advise people on reunion. Mm hmm. And the reason is I made a lot of mistakes in mine, and I don't consider myself an expert in how to handle reunions. You're fascinated by genealogy too, right? Absolutely. I love it. I Yeah, I mean, I was playing in those DNA databases for so many years that I just got hooked. It's like, it's kind of like what you, I know you were a detective, Jennifer. You go down the rabbit trail and you just can't stop. You're just like, I'm going to find it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah it's it's a great it's a great feeling and you know once we know who our birth parents are it opens us up to genealogy whereas we were close to it before you can't do genealogy if you don't have the name of your parent mm-hmm. so it feels really good it feels good to be able to build those trees and see the faces of my ancestors yeah yeah I like puzzles and putting the pieces together that's how I really ended up with uh, <laughs> detective work was right right up my alley. Oh, yeah, I yeah. can see that. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. I think you kind of got to get connected to the adoption community and, uh, of course, do as much reading as you can. You got to get connected with the resources within the community that will help you because there are a lot of people that know kind of what to do next and what to do after that. Uh, I have definitely found that to be helpful because what comes to your mind to do something like right away may not be the best way to go at first. Like you said, when you put your DNA in a system, it could just Mm -hmm. pop like, yeah, just like from, like you said, zero to 100. And even now, because I put mine in the system in 17 through Ancestry, as recent as last year, I got a hit with some first cousins on my birth mother's side and they grew up with her and they know so much like, and so I've been connecting with them. So this is probably going to happen at any given time once you put your DNA in the system. So yeah, sometimes it can be great making those connections, but when you don't know who your birth parent is, you don't want to reach out and ask people not right away. You don't You want to research and copy, document everything you can before you reach out and get some advice on how to reach out. There's really good ways to reach out to people and not so good ways. And a lot of people will shut you down, block you, and you just don't want that. Plus, you're outing your birth parent when you contact close relatives. Yeah. 
And so that's actually a great argument for opening up the birth certificates because it's more private to do a birth certificate one-on-one than it is to, you know, message your second cousin and say, hey, I'm adopted. Do you know my mother? I agree. Yeah, because that original birth certificate, I know mine and many other adoptees, contains the birth mother's signature. Yeah. And so that's a powerful piece of evidence, so to speak, when mm-hmm. other family members want to question what you're talking about because they didn't know the story or don't that's know right. the story. Yeah. yeah. If they don't know and you're a secret, it's not the greatest introduction to the family. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> I exist. Exactly. <laughs> yes. That's a yeah, good point. Very good point a great tool. I mean, I wouldn't know my birth father without it. It's one of those use with caution. Don't, you know, don't be afraid to use it, but just tread carefully. Mm-hmm. Really good guidance. I don't know if I mentioned my book that was published in 2015, The Adoptee Survival Guide, Adoptees Share Their Wisdom and Tools. Um, that was a community effort um, amongst 30 adoptees, including the cover artist. The cover art has a chameleon, which as a group, we voted on that to Mm. describe most of the people in the group because, you know, we're always changing. Um, We're people pleasers as a group rule and we can mold and fit into all sorts of circumstances. So that is available on Amazon if anyone wants to purchase it. Can you tell me what year that was uh, released? Yeah, 2015. And it was released the same month that Ohio birth certificates opened. And so I was fortunate enough to take part in the big celebration in Ohio with Becky Drennan and Paige Adam Strickland. We all went to Columbus together and we all walked to Vital Stats in a big parade with mm. Adoption Network Cleveland. It was really fantastic. And they had a big party and they had testimonials. And it was so great to be able to take part in that. Even though the three of us didn't, didn't get our birth certificates, Becky and Paige were under the old law that allowed them and I was in I am in Illinois so we didn't actually benefit from the law but we were very thrilled to support our fellow adoptees um, Ohio adoptees so it was yeah. great yeah I remember that I know I do have the survival guide and I highly recommend uh, adoptees getting that that book Thank all you. of them but that one yeah. I yeah I know about the most Well, thank you so much, Lynn, for having this conversation with me. Oh, I've absolutely enjoyed it. And I thank you for inviting me. (laughs) I really want to encourage your listeners to uh, take the time to listen to your audio drama meant to be and do it in the order of the podcast. I'm pretty sure there's one, two and three. It was really fantastic. I've never heard of an audio drama and I just felt like I was there understanding your experience. I actually cried during it. So it was really moving to me. Just by listening to it, I felt less alone. Oh, Lynn, thank you. Lynn Grubb is someone I find to be so easy to talk to about anything. We vibe together as adoptees, having taken the journey of search and reunion. Her influence within our community is a tremendous value, and I enjoy hearing what she has to say to all of the members of the Constellation. I learned so much from Lynn in this episode, and I'm certain that you did too. As a published writer and editor, she has enabled other adoptees to publish their work. 
Because of Lynn, many adoptees have taken center stage to share their powerful words. That is simply the best because the public needs to hear from us as often as possible. During our conversations, Lynn always makes me feel seen and heard through her encouraging words. I hope I do the same for her because I admire her so much. Thank you, Lynn, for having this conversation with me. It was so much fun from beginning to end. Lynn Grubb is creator and editor of the Adoptee Survival Guide. Adoptees share their wisdom and tools, published in 2015. And she is currently working on a memoir, which she hopes to publish this year, 2021. She is currently a student at the National Institute for Genealogical Studies. She hopes to work as a professional investigative genetic genealogist. Lynn has been married to Mark for 30 years and is mom to an adult son and a teen daughter. Remember to always look at the show notes of each episode for more information about our guest. If you are an adoptee and would like to share your adoption journey, please visit jenniferdianeghoston.com. Thank you so much for being here, and be sure and follow me on Instagram at Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land.